We're about to talk all about the Game of Thrones finale, but first a quick word about our sponsor, iBooks. They have these Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. In this episode, there's an incredible sequence at the Dragon Pit. And when this place is mentioned in the enhanced editions, you can tap an icon and bring up a detailed description of it from Martin's Westeros Encyclopedia that details its construction as this immense domed castle that the Targaryens built to house their dragons that has long since fallen into ruin. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but they're most likely available where you live. Well, the greatest mystery of Game of Thrones has at long last been answered. Yes, we can confirm that when a dragon is undead, it breathes blue flame. Now we know that. The show can be over. Just kidding. So much to dig into. I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. With me, as always, our man in Westeros, EW editor-at-large, James Hibbard. James, the final episode of season seven. We have seen it. It was 80 minutes long, the longest episode ever. I thought it really earned the running time. A lot of great moments that got to really kind of just lay there and insinuate themselves into your brain. Meetups between characters who've been parted for a very, very long time. Meetups between people who wanted to kill each other, who remarkably did not kill each other. What were your general thoughts about the finale of season seven, James? This is a season that's been characterized by a really fast pace. You know, the, you know, that's been the comment we keep hearing over and over again. The pace is so quick. Um, and it's had these uh, really big epic action sequences. So it's, it's been very action-driven, very fast-paced. And what's amazing is the finale really hit the brakes in a lot of ways. It slowed down. Even though a lot happened, the scenes felt like they, they had a lot of breathing room in them. And it seemed to refocus on the core things of drama, you know, great writing, great acting, great direction. And by doing that, I felt like this was arguably the best episode of the season. I, you know, to me, this episode and the spoils of war, um, the longest and the shortest episodes, uh, were, 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 the, were the two strongest ones uh, of, of, of the season. I mean, I, th- I felt we have so many amazing moments between characters you know the scene with Tyrion and Cersei which I really want to talk about the scene with Theon and Jon you know which just was a total surprise to me even covering the show I had no idea that scene was coming was was absolutely terrific you know and obviously a scene with uh, the Stark girls and Littlefinger to me this is a, a sequence in which it wasn't so much about big deaths or big action or a lot of the things that people think of when they when they think of think of Game of Thrones but it was just intensely dramatic and it just felt emotionally it just worked there are so many scenes in this where i just felt like the dialogue really crackled and emotionally the moments really connected and i have huge praise for the scene at the dragon pit where a scene that i was actually fortunate enough to be on set for and you know, the staging of, of, of that entire scene where they're all on this platform. They're just all these chairs in, in, in a semicircle. It's like this weirdly bare 
sparse, minimalist play staging that just kept the focus on the characters, you know, these larger than life figures rather than any distractions around them. And and to me, that that's almost like a metaphor for the whole episode. You know, the whole episode was very character focused. And you don't want every Game of Thrones episode to be like that. You want the big <laughs> action. You want all the sort of really dramatic stuff uh, and flashy stuff and and fast paced moments as well. But I think for a season in which there was a lot of that you know, slowing down for this finale just really worked. Yeah, you're describing that great sequence of just having so many characters who we know all assembled in the same place. You know, the word stagey is often used as kind of a negative connotation with regards to TV and movies, but I loved the sort of really, you know, spotlight falling on a bare stage with nothing there but our characters' quality to this scene. It felt a lot to me like the kind of stuff that that uh, Laurence Olivier used to do with his, like, Shakespearean movies, which were all always this weird blend of being like kind of fantastical but also just weirdly you could tell he was a guy who loved the stage I loved the sort of arrival of all the characters there I loved like Euron Greyjoy playing this kind of Caliban figure who like as Tyrion is about to launch into this speech he's clearly planned Euron just suddenly like jumps up and is like hey I'm I'm here too and I've got something to say to kind of play into that sort of quality I thought the setting of it was so interesting James I'd love to hear kind of more about what it was like being on set and what kind of went into that because I just loved the architecture of this and this sense of this sort of fallen majesty of the dragon pit and all these characters kind of meeting there. What was it kind of like on set with just so many big personalities, big location, lots of big stuff happening in a scene that was fundamentally about dialogue and people trying to convince each other of something? Well, this was shot outside Seville in Spain and these actual Roman ruins that go back to 250 B.C., and so most of what you're seeing there in terms of the surroundings is is all really there. It's a former like gladiatorial arena. And that's that's actually really fitting because that's what this was. I mean, it was, it was sort of like a, a arena of like verbal combat where they all came in. And when I went to the set uh, last fall, I knew almost nothing about season seven when I arrived. <laughs> and just imagine knowing nothing about season seven. You know, you, you you go off to Spain, you arrive on set, and you walk in, and the first thing you see is that scene where they're all on stage together. Uh, and you're just like, holy shit, how did the story get here? You, you know, what what you know, what what's happened this season that that this is that this is going on? Um and uh, you know, to watch it live, I mean, it's it's it was like watching a stage play. It was like watching a Game of Thrones stage play in which you're desperately trying to be a good reporter and not be in anyone's eyeline, which is difficult when they're all looking, you know, in in different directions. Uh, which is you know one of the rules when when watching things filmed is you try to avoid actors' eyeline so they don't like catch eye contact with you and are and are suddenly thinking about a reporter standing there while while they're trying to be in character. And one cool thing that, that, that the director, Jeremy Podeswa, did with that whole thing is normally when you're shooting something, there's just a few pages of dialogue can take a whole day uh, on a show like this. And there's so many you know, different uh, camera setups and they you know, do the long shots and they do close-ups and they do medium shots, they do reaction shots. So they're constantly having to do this stuff over and over again. And usually when you have all these stars, uh, when you have any stars in, in a scene – when they're not on camera, they send them back to the green room or back to their trailer or whatever. And what Jeremy Podesta did is he kept them all out there all day long on that stage so that even when it's just a close-up of Theon reacting to what's going on, 
he can see everybody else there at the same time. So, you know, and it's one of those things that may or may not ever translate into someone's performance. But the idea is, is to do everything you can to bring out the best performances in these people by trying to make them feel like they're really there and, and really with those other people at all times. You really felt it. I mean, yeah, like I, I love that knowing that that's the case because it does just lend that scene even more of a sort of alt mini quality of just like, you know, everybody is important. When you have that many characters all together and you're just aware of like their physical relationship to each other, it's just so great. Um, I do really love though the one scene that I'm glad we didn't see but that I'll always treasure in my fantasies is the Hound and John kind of beforehand like going over the presentation like, okay, so like you're going to let it out and like, you know, let it get kind of close to her <laughs> but then kind of pull back on the chain. I've got this flame. We'll kind of do the demonstration. It, it felt very like back when the ad agency uh, Sterling Cooper would do their really elaborate in-depth presentations. It was like, yes, Cersei will definitely be convinced after you guys show her this white. I, I just loved the, the, the stagecraft of all of that was so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is definitely John's the moment John Snow has been waiting for for so many years. He's been running around saying winter is coming. And it's really bad, and and nobody's been listening. And now he's got this big moment in the spotlight to do his like inconvenient truth presentation at at this like like G eight summit on on global cooling. And, and, you know, and, and, I, and I kept thinking, you know, what if the, you know, the hound opens that box and the white just plays dead like the Warner Brothers frog that like only sings when, when, when nobody else is around. And it's just like this horrible, awkward thing. And everyone goes, well, I don't know why we're here. We're leaving now. And he's like humiliated. I just want to get back to, to Euron one, one moment because I was so excited about Euron Greyjoy this season and I did you know some stories about him running up to it and, and the reason was is was seeing that scene and I was because it was so different than we remember him from last season and um, and I yeah I just love that there's this moment of silence when they all all sit down and then Tyrion begins speaking and it's almost like Euron was waiting for someone to start <laughs> speaking just so he could interrupt them and be an asshole. It's like, yeah. it's like I'm going to do the alpha move and totally make you look weak, bro. Even Cersei just, just can't even abide by, by him. It's just like going, dude, you're just embarrassing me. We'll talk more about this later, but I will just say that in this scene, at least, I thought that Euron had the absolute correct response, which was to ask the only important question when it comes to zombies can they swim? And if the answer is no, bye bye I'm going to my island. I thought that was the appropriate strategy. We'll get into uh, later to what extent he actually meant that or not. Um, but just in general, James, I, I loved how this scene built up to this real spotlight falls on the young king moment of, you know, Cersei kind of saying, fine, I'll do this, but you, king of the north, need to kind of swear eternal Switzerland status with regards to us two queens fighting for Westeros admirable what Jon Snow did sticking to the fact that he had already bent the knee honoring the first queen that he has sworn his fealty to I do like how literally everyone else there made a show of saying like well John you really Ned Starked this one didn't you like yeah good good for you good <laughs> exactly. for you good for you for maintaining all your like loyalty and honesty and dignity this is the rare situation where there were more important things but well, you know what I what I liked about that too is 
I think it's a really good chance for the show to play with some of its central characters and what they represent, that we do kind of get this moment of Jon Snow saying, like, well, I have to do what I've got to do, and, uh, you know, I've, I've already sworn fealty and I can't betray that. But, of course, unlike his father, he is allied with people who are perhaps a little bit savvier than he is. And so I loved that as much as Jon Snow got this hero moment, that was really, in a way, just a prologue to Tyrion and his sort of, okay, well, now I gotta go and, like, Tyrion Lannister this thing, or rather even Tywin Lannister this thing, and try to sort of figure out how we can get Cersei on board with us. I mean, again, I just, I loved the sort of delicate nature with which the show was kind of honoring what each of these characters represent with regards to strategy and politics and the machinations that define Westeros. Yeah, one of my favorite exchanges in the whole episode is Tyrion going, funny line, you know, that delivered perfectly by Peter Dinklage. Have you ever considered learning how to lie just a bit? <laughs> and then Jon Snow, which is really funny, and then Jon Snow flies back with this earnest one, which is a great line too. You know, when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything, and there are no more answers, only better and better lies. And I love that he's like completely aware of the sort of Ned Star comparison and just doesn't care. You know, it's like, yeah, I know, but too bad. This is who I am, and I'm gonna be be true to that. And and yeah, it's great that, that even Daenerys, who's just been you know, spent the you know, you know, maybe she shouldn't have spent, you know, the entire season begging him to bend the knee if she wanted him to be flexible on this point, you know, you know, for political reasons. Here's a question though. If he hadn't bent the knee, do you think that he would have gone along with what uh, Cersei asked? Well, this is the one thing is like, and you know, again, I love Jon Snow to death. I don't think he is the most elaborate of thinkers when it comes to greater like crown royal policies. So I think essentially what would have happened would have been like, he would have just paused there and we would have had this sort of him looking to everyone trying to communicate, what should I do? What should I do? I have to imagine that he would not have done that. I have to imagine that he would have said something along the lines of like, I can't swear fealty to you and not to you or something like that. Again, this is a rare example of where him sort of being a very blunt object for justice sometimes, I think is helpful to him. And I I did like too how what he said did seem to kind of unlock something with Tyrion because the scene that followed between Tyrion and Cersei, which I thought, I mean, maybe more than anything this season, to me just really felt like it brought my understanding of this show like right back to the the history we've seen of it and really reframed it because I loved how him and Cersei did more or less tell each other the truth and did sort of like have this sort of meeting of the minds, you know, not the whole truth necessarily as we learned later, but I just loved how like his idea was like, oh, I guess I can't lie my way out of this. And I thought that was just really interesting and so compelling for both the actors, too. Both Lena Headey and Pierre Dinklage did an incredible job in that scene. And the writing was terrific. I mean, in real life, you know, they're they're good friends and they love doing scenes with each other and they haven't had an opportunity to for a while. So now that they got a really great one, they both knocked it out of the park and one thing that I really appreciate about the way the scene is written is is Cersei makes this point, you know, and we're used to Cer- thinking, you know, Cersei's pretty much wrong about everything most of the time. You know, you know, she admits for the first time that Tyrion didn't kill Joffrey. And she points out that it doesn't really matter because, you know, he did kill their father. And by doing so, it set off a sequence of events that led to their enemies thinking they're weak and she lost her two other children because of that. And you know, she's she's kind of right. 
I mean, she's kind of right. So, you know, she's got a really good point there. You know, she's got a really valid reason to, to hate him for that. And at the same time, she's actually arguing against herself because she was the one who charged basically since, since Tywin Lannister died. So it's sort of like you, you destroyed our family by putting me in charge and I should still be in charge. So it's like the circular argument that you can't win. Yeah. Well, and of course what she's saying, you know, you did something that indirectly caused all these bad things to happen, you know, and she'd be aware of this. Like Cersei, you and Jamie sleeping together caused stuff both directly and indirectly to happen. This is sort of in a way the story of the show. I mean, like is Robert Baratheon the great villain of Game of Thrones because he set off on a rebellion out of a misunderstanding of about what his betrothed wanted out of her life. Is the Mad King the bad guy? You know, it's just, I like how she frames that. It certainly gives me more insight into her perspective on things. But I did also like, I mean, you know, I'm just going to say this season really brought me around to Cersei in a lot of ways. Not that I'm saying that, like, I'd want her to be in charge of my country, but I think it really gave a lot of insight and thoughtfulness to her that, you know, we hadn't seen so much in her kind of high sparrow dueling days. And I do think that, you know, this idea that as far as she's concerned, she was right all along that she didn't like Tyrion and his actions somehow directly caused the fall of her family. Really great stuff. Really great stuff between them. And given where we left off with her later on, I just thought that the layers of that scene were just so so thoughtful and really made me want to go back and, and rewatch it again. Yeah. And of course, there's a moment where you think that maybe she's going to order the mountain to kill uh, Tyrion, just like later we we think that she might order the mountain to, k- to kill Jamie. And what's compelling about that is that the thing that she she seems to hate Tyrion the most is that he killed their father. And the one thing that she always used to say that always used to be her redeeming quality is that she cared about her kids. So Cersei's somebody who is so totally uh, selfish and homicidal. But the one thing she won't do is kill a close family member. And that's the one thing Tyrion did. He crossed the one line that she wouldn't cross herself. And so I think that's one reason why she hates him so much. Absolutely. Um, You know, just to kind of finish up there, I mean, like, we had that great moment, her kind of return to the dragon pit, her saying, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to set aside our differences. Not only are we, like, you know, not going to pull our armies back, we're going to march up there with you. We're going to fight the army of the dead. You know, I liked all of that because it really feels like, you know, with other characters, you're always kind of aware of a certain amount of altruism. Her saying it, I thought was really effective. But I got to say, James, I mean... Cersei is the one who's making the most intriguing strategic moves right now because the late episode revelation that quite the opposite, she's kind of done the math on this and thinks that the best thing for her is to sit back and let the monsters kind of take care of each other. Sort of like, you know, all right, like Tokyo... We don't know what's going to happen. Godzilla and Mechagodzilla and Mothra are going to fight it out. And we'll hope that if you send one maniac, they'll kill another maniac. I kind of agree with her. Like, yeah, like, what are the Lannister armies going to add to that? It makes total sense to me, her notion of, like, well, we're definitely going to lose if we partner up with Danny on this battle. And we're definitely going to lose if we take on the Night King. Let's just roll the dice here and see if they all kind of kill each other. I, I, I'm, I do think that is sound reasoning, but I don't know. How did you kind of feel about that kind of final revelation, James? It was definitely very deflating as far as what the mission of this season was all about for all the more heroic figures. Well, it, it is a little weird that Cersei, who's never been 
that great of a tactician is now a brilliant tactician. <laughs> and Tyrion, who's always been super smart, see, seems to make one bad decision after another this season. <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it feels a little bit that that was done to kind of balance the scales between them. You know, because uh, Danny entered the season uh, with such an you know overwhelming uh, advantage. You know, you see snow uh, falling as Jamie leaving. Uh, you know, which which answers the question does winter you know how far down does winter go you know you, you know we, we've wondered that before on, on on this podcast you know you know you know so you know does winter come to dorn you know that sort of thing uh yeah apparently it does there's one bit from melisandre and you know she's not a really great source obviously you know, like, <laughs> you know <laughs> but in her in her uh in one of her prophecy statements back i think it was like back in season two you know she talked about you know uh when winter comes and she notes when the seas uh, when the oceans freeze and it makes me wonder whether that can potentially happen um, so maybe the whole island boat thing and your euron's whole statement that it, that it's an option to do the Shaun of the Dead thing where it's like, you know, I'm just going to go to the Winchester, you know, have a pint and wait for this to all blow over, you know, this whole zombie attack. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe that maybe that's actually not an option, especially not, now that he is a dragon can like fly over ocean. So, so so who knows? That is a great ending for the Greyjoys, isn't it, James? Euron just kind of hanging out at Pike like, boys, we're fine. We'll just wait here for a few years and then we'll be A-OK. Suddenly like flash freezing a la day after tomorrow and just Army of the Dead starts patrolling, starts walking over from Westeros. Right. And yeah, and 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 you notice he he did that little thing to uh Danny, which which probably wasn't part of him and Cersei's little plan. Like, hey, you know, why don't why don't you take off too? We'll we'll just wait for you know everyone else to die, and then we can have like post-apocalypse hookup. Uh, because you know, there is that line that he said to Cersei. You know, I've always dreamed of marrying the most beautiful woman in the world. And then in walks Daenerys and he's like looking at her like, oh, well, hello. So, yeah. So, I mean, he, you know, he's he's still on Team Cersei. But I mean, I, I certainly don't think that that uh, she should be trusting him. But we, we should get the scene with Jamie, you know, another amazing uh, Lena Headey scene uh, with with Nikolai also crushing it. You know, this this was the breakup. I mean, we we have one incestuous relationship beginning on this show, and another one, uh, you know, as another one is 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 ending. And this has been brewing for such a long time. Jamie, ever since he came back from being captured, uh, he's he's been trying to hold on to his tattered honor and trying to balance her needs. Uh, with his need to like still be an honorable man, and this this finally put him to the test, and he just went to that point where it's like that that line in in the Star Wars prequels where you're going, I cannot follow. You know, you know, you know it's just one step too many. Emperor Cersei and and Darth Mountain and his new you know black and silver armor. You know, he he couldn't do it, and. And and she couldn't get you know the mountain to kill him you know so and he said that line that great line I don't believe you and stormed off and I was thinking in that scene if she kills him she would be killing the only person in the entire world who still loves her and if she were to do that then then like why even exist anymore really 
Yeah, I mean, I fully thought my fiance and I were on the edge of our seat there because we were like, well, this is it. This is the big surprise. This is where Jamie dies, and how tragic is that? I did really like, though, I mean, some interesting little bits of kind of scooping up stuff from the books in this episode. Um, you know, one of the last moments that we have with Jamie in the books that I believe comes from Feast for Crows is him, in a very different circumstance, kind of seeing some of the first snowflakes of, of winter and like what that means for him in that moment, similar yet different to what it means for him here in this episode, this quality of kind of really fully sundering himself from Cersei and setting off in a perhaps new direction. thought that was really interesting. Um, also just loved that we know there's something tragic happening with the two of them. And, you know, it would have been a shock if this had been that moment, but I love that, you know, that's kind of something yet to be further teased out. I mean, I am aware, as I am praising Cersei for being, like, my my new favorite kind of political strategist on the show, I am very aware that this episode felt to me like it was her last chance as far as being like, okay, do you want to take the off-ramp here? Do you want to live in harmony with your remaining family and perhaps even have a new blonde child? Um, and, you know, next season, unless we're heading towards a really nihilistic place, I imagine we'll look back and say, like, well, this is when this is when the prophecy started to come true. No more children, you know, killed by own brother, possibly two options of brothers who, who could kill her now. So I just I, I thought that the delicacy of handling all of that in a scene between these two characters who've had so much to do with each other was just really lovely and freaky all at the same time. And to answer two fan questions I've been getting on Twitter, um, yes, uh, her pregnancy is real from what I understand. A lot of people think that she might be faking that from my interviews with the cast. um, That is uh, real. Um, the uh, second question that people had is, where is Jamie going? And and by the way, you know, if you're a fan of this podcast, this is not the last episode we're going to do. Uh, we're going to be doing another one next week where we talk about uh, the final season and our predictions uh, probably very wrong for for for, for that. But one of the questions and uh, our question we got was, you know, where's Jamie going? Uh, we know he's going north. We know he's presumably going to fight uh, in the Great War. My assumption is that he'll probably end up at White Harbor since that's where Danny and John uh, are headed off to. It looks like there's going to be some big council there with the with the northern lords where 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 John and Danny sort of present themselves. So uh, basically, wherever Brienne is at, you know, I, I suspect Jamie is going to end up there too. But uh, speaking of Winterfell um, and White Harbor is just south of Winterfell, by the way, um, we should get up to. Winterfell because there's been some very interesting developments in this storyline that people had a lot of strong feelings about. Law fans did not like the Stark sisters turning on each other. And Thrones uh, threw us for a a little loop. Um, The big conversation that we've been wanting to see where Bran and Arya and Sansa sort of trade information and figure things out. All that happened off screen. You know, they they just decided to to not show that and to uh, throw us a little loop. Let me ask you, Darren. When 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 Arya walked into that hall, did you think that she was the one who was in trouble? 
No, I mean, like, I I don't want to dwell on this too much. Um, I I don't think I, I think that of all the narratives this season that you look back and feel like there was just sort of a biding of time until we could set the table for the final season. I think that Winterfell was kind of the most extreme version of that. Um, I, I think the fact that it literally ended with the tenth scene of like the Winterfell Parliament and L- Littlefinger over in his sort of corner of the room against you know it just it felt like. All that was missing from the scene was Sansa kind of doing the Dumb and Dumber thing. Like, Arya, just when I think you can't do anything more worse, you do something like this and totally redeem yourself. Like, it was just the twist of it wasn't that convincing to me because it felt like, okay, we've now spent like three episodes lingering with them, seeming to not like each other, which winds up feeling just kind of a kind of a goof, really. You're very aware, as you said, James. All right, there was a scene between three Stark children having a conversation about all this, which would have been a lot more interesting. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens to Littlefinger in the books that are yet to come. But my suspicion is we'll find that, you know, because of various reasons that we won't get into here, he maybe had a more elaborate plan in his literary version than in the TV version. A lot of love for the character, a lot of love for the actor. So I I liked where that scene ended, but I thought the setup was a little bit faulty. But how did you feel about the buildup to the sort of big death of uh, this, this episode, James? I mean, I guess you could look at it and say... Would they have really done that if not for us watching? Right. You know, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it did seem to be playing to the viewer a, a little bit, but I disagree about the 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 trading information scene because I, I don't think that sort of expositional conversation would have been better than this. Um, it's it's always tricky when you have characters recapping to each other what we already know, and so if you're going to have that. You, it, it would be basically telling us that three times because we saw it play out, right. um, you know, you know, on the show in past seasons. Then Bran would have been telling uh, Sansa and Arya, and then they would have confronted him with it too. So that would have been like three times. So I think they kind of smartly took out the one they didn't need to show, and therefore focused on the one that would be the most dramatic, and that would be you know, you know, saying it to. To right. Littlefinger and and uh, Aiden uh, Gillian just did this. He's always great, and in this scene, I thought they really gave him a great opportunity to sort of do this wonderful gradual showcase of him smirking his last smirk in the shadows, and then doing this. Excuse me, me? What? Huh? You know, you know, you know, being pulled out into the center of the room where he absolutely doesn't ever want to be. He always wants to be, you know, in the margins, uh, you know, behind the scenes. You know, he doesn't like the spotlight to be on him. Yeah. And, and then being, uh, you know, having all of his, uh, transgressions laid out um, with with the uh, the Brandbot nine thousand reading back his former quotes from past seasons. He went through all these stages from from cockiness uh, to surprise to trying to do his usual persuasion thing to things we haven't seen. You know, we saw we've seen those other things before, and then he shows us like actual alarm and panic and desperation and even begging in tears and. As the actor pointed out, uh, there's a couple things that are callbacks in this. One, um, 
him playing off Sansa and Arya against each other was the same thing that that he did before playing off Lisa Aaron and and Kate, Caitlin uh Stark you know against each other so he he did try to do it against two generations of of sisters yeah. so it kind of makes what happened earlier in the season make a bit more sense to those who have struggled with it because this is him doing what he he he's done before right and by being in this position at the end uh it's a callback to an incident very early in his life, which we never have only alluded to, you know, it's never been actually shown when he was um, in a duel uh, for for Caitlin's affections, and he lost. And uh, it was Brandon Stark, right? Is was yep. was, was was the name of the character? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who famously beat him but didn't kill him, and and cut him his chest from like navel to collarbone. I I, I think it was, you know, as, as a reminder of of that humiliation. Uh, you know that that scar on his chest, which he always keeps covered up in these these high button tunics, and you know that was such a humiliating moment for him, and was such a driver for him for so many years to 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 climb that ladder and to never be in that position again. And at his very last moment, he ends up in that position again, uh, being rejected and humiliated. Only in, in, in this time, instead of a man doing it, it's it's the object of, of his affection, uh, Sansa, who I really do, as as she says, I really do think he he did love her in a way. You know, he loved yeah. her in you know, as much as he can do that. And it's fun to watch that scene and just watch Arya because all she does, as soon as she, uh, Sansa, you know, says his name, all she does is keep her eyes on him the entire time. She is just waiting. She is just, she's waiting for him to try something. She's waiting to make her move. And she does this awesome casual execution uh, putting an end to his ladder climbing. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear, great work by the actors here. I love James. Everyone should read your great interview with Aidan Gillen. He makes this great point that a lot of his job, he felt like, was bringing warmth and affability to Littlefinger, who, as he says, is very shadowy, villainous, even treacherous. I think another issue is just like, this season more than ever, Littlefinger went like full Bram Stoker vampire, like literally just lingering in the shadows, wearing all black, like plotting. You're very aware that should he be killed, you know, the one bit of air cover he had was I'm in charge of the Eerie, essentially. And just at this point, you no longer believe that the Knights of the Eerie are going to care, and indeed they don't. Brings up my one other qualm with this. Sansa mentions, like, I saw you kill Lisa Aaron and all this. And you'd think the Knights of the Eerie would be kind of like, uh, well, what? Like, you saw that? Like, you didn't tell us that. Like, <laughs> That's a good point. We're, we're yeah. a little, we're yeah. a little, there's just a, a weird amount of right. artificial setup for this. Though, it, it's, it's possible and perhaps even rather likely that they all kind of figured that. Right. That that's right. not really new in, <laughs> information to them. And in fact, they might have actually filled them in on this before this little thing with little finger even happened. That that way, it would have reduced the chance of them going to support him in, in that moment. So they probably told him. Um, although, although they would probably be like Sansa, hey, why didn't you tell us this? But <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're right. That is something that that just kind of skated by a bit. But but I can also think of reasons why they wouldn't have had that reaction in that moment. You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game of Thrones Weekly. 
It's easy to get a little bit lost in the sheer volume of character names you have to keep track of in Game of Thrones. So whenever characters are talking about Aegon Targaryen or Torin Stark or some other ancestors who are related to our characters, it's a really great time to check out the Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions on iBooks. It's just a great interactive way to get deeper into the lore of Game of Thrones and the original books that inspired the HBO TV show. You click on a footnote whenever a character appears, you'll see who they're related to, where they're from, what they've been doing to that point in the story. There are maps, there are house histories, there are guides to the whole world of Westeros and beyond. The enhanced editions of Game of Thrones are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. These books are so wonderful. They inspired this great TV show definitely check out the enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. The table is set, as I said. We got the scene that we really wanted and frankly could have had a few episodes ago. The two sisters fully united. That's all good. I love the sort of like shooting of that where you just kind of saw the camera rise above them. Some great like battlements visuals in this episode, which I really appreciated. Um, And, you know, James, while we're talking table setting, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's excited to know that this show has not given up on the Greyjoys. No, 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 James. No, no, no. In fact, (laughs) in fact, we might argue argue the fall and redemption of Theon Greyjoy, the ultimate story of Game of Thrones, question mark? How did you feel about poor Theon? Well, okay, no longer poor Theon, a character who has only been beaten up and despised and just had tragedy heaped upon him for half a decade now. This episode, I thought, gave him some real interesting grace notes. How'd you feel about scene between him and John and how that kind of sets up him and the whole Greyjoy narrative going into the final season. I am a man that can admit that that scene almost made me cry <laughs> and might have made me tear up a little bit. Um, and I didn't expect that because uh, Theon hasn't um, had much of a presence this season. And, you know, I did kind of get to a point with him where I felt like, okay, you know, we keep kind of seeing the same thing with him to some extent. And this scene was Alfie Allen's best scene in the series. It Definitely. was terrific. They they really made up for his his lack of screen time by giving him this amazing moment in the finale. That conversation with John was just terrific. And Kit Harrington in this scene was great too, playing the big brother uh, everybody wishes they had. You know, he found it in himself to forgive Theon, which we would think that he would, but he also, you know, still very sternly and very coldly made it clear that he feels that what Theon did uh, was really, truly horrible and awful. And, and that, you know, it's not his place to forgive him for, for that or, or to let him off the hook for that. So, so he held that line and his moral core and, and held, you know, that whole, sense of you know you know he, of being a person that that's that's not going to tolerate any bullshit but at the same time you know gave him that you know that great line you know you you are a greyjoy and you're a stark and also gave him permission to do 
something that you know he probably shouldn't give him per- permission to do, you know, because you know because they think they're in a truce with Cersei. So 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 going off and trying to rescue one of her prisoners is probably probably a violation of that. But what did you think of their conversation? I loved it. This was an episode that was so weirdly full of Ned Stark um, in a way that really did bring a tear to my eye both times. We have the scene between John and Theon and the scene between Sansa and Arya both times. These two sets of kids raised by the father Ned Stark or stepfather slash ward slash arguably imprisoner with Theon, but we don't need to get into that right now. Um, and the way in which they're all kind of trying to honor his memory by in an interesting way like maybe setting aside their differences and realizing what does unify them um i think that's a relatively simple idea how our parents kind of live in us but seeing it in this moment these characters who have even had scenes together but who haven't really had that chance to really weigh in on like okay like how are our parents still alive in us like what did they teach us and how can we take that forward and i just thought that for a character who's literally seen the absolute scuzzball subterranean slum of what the human condition can offer to have Theon have that real moment of grace from Jon Snow and I'd be interested to know it sounded to me as if Kit Harington was almost really purposefully channeling Sean Bean in this scene just this sense of like you are someone who was raised by Ned Stark and like that is still a part of you and will always be a part of you I just found that to be really really moving as you said and so moving on the part of both actors again it sounds simple to say like well yeah they were raised by the same guy but I'm not sure I've seen that notion dramatized so expertly as I did in that scene uh, between the two of them you're absolutely right. Uh, Ned Stark has not only hung over this episode, it's really hung over this whole season. I don't think there's been a season with so many uh, re- references and 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 callbacks to him. And this scene is potentially foreshadowing to some degree too, because with what we're about to learn about Jon Snow, you know, you know, he is a he, he is a Targaryen and he's a Stark, right? But I also want to talk about the fight scene with Theon afterward because, boy, you know, this show. I mean, it, it's it's really difficult to take the, the the lamest comedy trope, you know, someone being kicked in the nuts, and turn it into a moment that's as emotionally effective as this one. And I'm curious how this played for a lot of people, because I feel like it's really easy to be misinterpreted as comedy. You know, he, he's in this fight trying to convince, uh, you know, one of his men to, 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 to back him and go rescue Yara. You know, they're in, they're in this knockdown drag out fight. He gets put, you know, kicked to the ground. He's told, "Stay down or I'll kill you." And we know that when faced with you know, seemingly certain death before, he always almost always chooses to back down. He gets back up, he fights some more. The man starts kneeing him in the groin and of course, you know, we know he's castrated and Theon breaks into this grin that, unlike any I think that we've ever seen from him, at least at least since season one. And I think the message in that moment is that he realizes that what's been taken from him can no longer hurt him. That that the pain of his past can no longer hurt him. And 
And to me, that's that. It's such a powerful message wrapped in a groin kick. It's 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 it's, it's, it's it was mind blowing. And now he's 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 free of that past. And you know, I would even add to that, James. And I think you're so right to read it that way. It also goes back to the stuff that Tyrion was telling Jon Snow years and years ago. This idea that like in this world where we're so used to thinking of like high fantasy and noble heroes and these like swaggering Rhaegar Targaryen types and these, you know, princesses. Yes, you might be a misfit physically. You might be missing something that has often defined heroes. Um, in, a, in, a, in an episode that began with a couple of guys talking about people without exactly. uh, male sex organs. But I love that, no, it's like, Theon, your weakness is your strength, too. And your weakness is, like, you know, them either literally giving you the ability to survive a groin kick in a way that other men may, may not, but also just, like, don't deny this, like, own this. I just found that to be, as you said, James, just so wonderful to have Theon have that moment and have it be a hero moment without denying all the horrible things he's done. It made me feel like, wow, here is a character who I, I kind of thought at any point in the last couple of years, you could have told me this is the episode where he dies and I would have believed it and sort of mourned it in a way. But to be kind of like, oh, wow, like going into the last act here, there is still some life left in him and something for him to learn. Just really wonderful, I thought. Really kind of amazing work by Alfie Allen. As, as, as you said, too. So let's get to the other big thread in this episode. Um, we've sort of known this, right? I mean, we, we've all been like 90-some percent sure that John's father is Rhaegar Targaryen. The, you know, they, they muted the audio, sort of, when Lyanna Stark whispered it to Ned in that flashback in last season's finale. And so they've held that piece of information back. And we're wondering, well, why are they holding that back? And the usual assumption would be is that it's not what we think. In this case, it was what we thought, but the showrunners wanted to hold it until it has maximum impact. And that maximum impact would be right when John uh, ends up uh, uh, sleeping with Danny. So, you know, Bran and and Sam put it together. Uh, he's not a Stark. Uh, he's a Targaryen. He has no business being King of the North. He has every right to be heir to the Iron Throne. Daenerys, therefore, uh, been running around her entire life thinking uh, that, that uh, or, or, or at least since her, her brother died, thinking that she is the, the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. All his time questing for this, it's not you know legitimately hers to have. So it, it's, it's about as big of a re revelation as it can be, even though it's one we all kind of figured. In a way, the twist is that there was no twist with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we go into this, and... Now, John and Danny, incest happening, nephew and aunt. How do we feel about it? James, I loved, uh, you sort of made the case in your recap. This interesting idea that here's a show that began with incest as this thing that was immediately coded as bad or wrong or, you know, just socially wrong. And, you know, fair to say that that is the general consensus view in the real world. I'm, I'm not trying to make judgments, just saying like that's sort of like you came to the show with that idea. Listen, people can live however they want to live, but like you came to the show. <laughs> Darren won't judge you if you're into incest is what I, he's trying to say. I, I, I just think, you know, you, you came 
came to the show with that as the show implicitly presented it as this bad thing that led to all kinds of other bad things. And I, I am intrigued by your idea that the sort of intriguing bookend of this in the episode where we saw the end of that one incestuous relationship is sort of the triumphant return to it. Um, I would just add, I think on some level, it'll be interesting to see, right? Like, you know, do they sort of get to the point where they're just kind of like, well, whatever, like, yes, hi, I'm Daenerys Targaryen. I am, like, the daughter of decades and generations of incest. Shrug, whatever. John's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't think I care that much. Or there's the other layer to it, which I find interesting and a little wonderfully freaky, which is... Their journey to each other, John and Danny, I think has been almost eerily too straightforward this season. It sort of has been a a shipper's dream so far. Like, yes, they meet. There's a firelit meeting in the cave. Uh, she saves him. He saves her. Now they're all teamed up and they're together. And I am struck by the almost, it's like one of those Faulkner novels where you find out midway through that everybody was secretly siblings and they weren't aware of it and one person knew and one person didn't. You are kind of struck by like, oh, maybe they might feel a little strange about this. And maybe their their reaction to it, not just to the fact that they are related, but Danny's reaction to John's true ancestry and his reaction to his own true ancestry. You're just aware this is a scene that is otherwise shot as a kind of cute, perfect, two of our favorite heroes getting together. And there's just that little asterisk, not little, huge, of you might not like what you hear when you get up to Winterfell. And I, I found that really, really interesting for sure. But what, you know, what, what did you kind of think about this? How do you think it kind of reverberates into what we're going to see next season? I mean, I think you're supposed to feel torn while watching it. And, and certainly uh, I felt that to some degree, there's, there's an element of doom hanging over this that and I think that's partly just because of the show that we're on, you know, you know, it has been this, this, this great courtship of these two characters that we care so much about, and they seem to be such a perfect fit for each other. Um, you know, the, you know, Westeros, you know, isn't our world, you know, you, you know, John and Danny can't go like back onto Tinder and just start swiping, you know, it's pretty hard <laughs> to find somebody that's compatible to you, you know, but in so many ways when you're like, you know, a, a, a you know, of a, a royal person of their status, you know, so it, it, I think emotionally it, it's, it's like, I kind of don't have a problem with it exactly. You know, I, I, you know, given the, the, the parameters of the show and the world that they're in, but you, you do feel like, like this probably can't end well. And there's also been so many references this season to John and Danny and their offspring or potential offspring and whether uh, Daenerys can get pregnant. And she, you know, notes this time, that, Oh yeah, I was told that by a, by a witch who killed my husband. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, when you say it like that, you know, <laughs> you know, it, you know, it does count. You know, it does sound kind of silly. So they seem to be clearly setting up this, this a reveal of her being pregnant, which would very much, you know, complicate matters. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think a lot of this hinges on what happens next. Um, I did find it interesting that Tyrion is like voyeuristically lurk, lurking outside uh, their door with this upset expression on his face. And I got some questions on, on Twitter about that too. And my read on that, and I don't know, but my read on it was that 
a queen choosing a a husband uh, in this world is not a romantic decision. It's a massive political decision uh, with huge consequences. I mean, you know, we all remember what happened with Rob Stark, right? So <laughs> I think that this is something that 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 he would want to, you know, really committee and figure out not only uh, the best person, but the best timing and her uh, hooking up with the King of the North, or so he thinks that, that he's the King of the North might uh, is, 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 is sort of one of those impulsive things that, that good Queens don't do. Yeah. And, and the point about Tyrion, I think is very correct. The way the camera lingered on him, I feel like there, there was this read on like, is there something on his head? I just think he's concerned. I think more than anything, he recognizes like the problems that might come from this, as you said, James. I also found myself kind of trying to Lannister out some strategy and be like, who else could she theoretically marry? Like who is kind of left in Westeros right. that could make a sort of sensible post-Great War match? And all I could really come up with was like Robin Aaron. So I was like, I don't know. I think, I mean, I, I think maybe, <laughs> oh God, maybe this is the best no. decision, but it, it does make me wonder if, you know, in an episode that made me thought that made me think a lot about Shakespeare and just like the staging of a lot of this stuff. I do wonder if we're, if we're leading towards a sort of ending of Shakespeare in love moment where like, yes, Danny is pregnant. She has a child for whatever reason, some political necessity, her and John don't ultimately end up together. I don't know. We'll see. I'm still not convinced that everybody's like not going to die next season but I liked how again their chemistry their dynamic love both of the actors I'm not sure I'm all the way invested in this relationship but I, I'm very invested in what the show is doing all around the relationship to complicate it and complexify it and just add a weird level to it I'm I'm, I'm, I'm here for that for sure as we go into the home stretch yeah yeah I mean you would think that that brand you know who's been you know you know sending these ultra speedy ravens all over Westeros this season he's like you know Oh, John needs to know this. It's like, well, why didn't you mention that in the in the previous Ravens <laughs> that yeah. you said to him? God. You know, he you know, kind of would have been a good thing uh, for for the poor guy to know. And speaking of Bran, you know, he wargs to check out what's going on at Eastwatch, um, uh, where the Night King shows up as we expected he would uh, with his army of the dead and riding his new rad dragon mount of uh, Asarian and. Yeah, blue fire. Who knew? Uh, dead dragons do breathe fire, and uh, and took out a huge chunk of the wall. Uh, you, you, the wall coming down has been like teased for 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 and it's kind of foreshadowed for so long. I, I think this is one thing that we're we're definitely expecting. Uh, I don't think we expected uh, Barrack and Tormund uh, to be up there. You know, that, that's that's another question I've been getting. Are Barrack and Tormund dead? I don't know definitively if they're dead or not, but I would 99% suspect that they are not dead just because of the TV rule. Um, if you don't see uh, somebody die, they're probably not dead with all respect to uh, Ilaria Sand. You know, her death was at least, you know, heavily set up and and explained how, you know, you know, she was going to die before she, you know, we cut away from her in that cell. Uh, so... Yeah, I I think Tom and and, and Barrack are fine. I they might not survive the first scene of season eight, uh, but I think that they'll at least 
we'll at least see them again. Yeah, you know, we'll be talking a lot more about like some of our theories about where it goes from here in next week's episode, but I, I do just think that was very intrigued by the setup here, um, and I'm definitely a sucker for zombie dragons breathing blue flame. Um, this was definitely the culmination of a very, very long walk the Army of the Dead has been taking for a very long time. <laughs> I really appreciated, James, the fact that, like, you know, I kind of thought after last week's episode, like, maybe that's the last we see of the Army of the Dead. I like that the Night King is not tarrying now. He's like, I got my dragon. I'm going. D- did I think that was the most dramatic point to end on? Like, maybe not. It was definitely cool. Uh, and yeah, to your point, it seems strange that... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, Beric Dondarrion refused to die this season. That was the long and short of season seven. Here is a character who just put, kept on putting himself in precarious situations. He's not dead yet. We'll see what happens in the first scene of uh, season eight. But, but more than anything, it did make me feel like, okay, everyone's marching north. We've heard a lot about a great war. When does that great war happen? Does it happen at the end of next season? I I took this final scene as a signposting that like, no, like great war marching south right now. Like watch out all those small towns up by the wall that uh, we've not talked about too much. Like the Joe Jen Reed's ancestral home is like going to get whacked uh, pretty soon. Um, So yeah, I I I liked all that. The Citadel is is definitely in trouble. As I said, We'll discuss the implications of that more in next week's episode. But for right now, it's time for the most exciting part of every episode. I'm talking, of course, about our trivia question giveaway. Last week's question, we had asked you two characters had a specific conversation about the Siege of Pike. Who was talking? Who was there listening? Who was also there? We're talking Euron and Jamie. That's right. Those two guys, they just can't get along. Will they ever get along? Probably not. Uh, This week's trivia question had a great conversation from Jon Snow about how his pal Theon Greyjoy is both a Stark and a Greyjoy. It's rather nice because Jon, of course, is both a Stark and a Targaryen. Here's a question for you. Of all the great houses that were around at the start of the show, we're talking Tully, Stark, Lannister, Greyjoy, Baratheon, Aaron, Martell, Tyrell, Targaryen, not counting any more houses that have become great uh, in the intermediary time. Um, We are looking for, is there some kids who are left in this new generation that represent two great houses. Father and mother were from two of those great houses. And those children are now the reigning members of one great house. So we're looking for any children who are son slash daughter of two great houses and are now in charge of their own great house. I'll give you a hint. We're looking for two answers here. Ranking people in a great house whose parents came from two different great houses of Westeros. Give us the names of the people. You always do these ultra-complicated process of elimination yes, questions. Yes, yes, yes. And then I also confuse myself. So give me, give me the names of the people and the two great houses their parents were members of. Email your answers to podcast at ew.com. We will do a random draw, and one winner will be selected at random. What are they going to win, you ask? Well, you're going to win some potential fun items for giveaway, like Gingers Are Beautiful and We Are Kissed by Fire mug. 
Gingers are beautiful. We are kissed by fire t-shirt for men or women. Or James's favorite, a Vizarian t-shirt for men or for women. A lot of great responses. Email us, gotpodcastaw.com. Tweet at us while you're at it. We love hearing from you. He's at James Hibbard. Very tired. A lot more Game of Thrones writing to do. Send him some uh, love. Send him some notes. I'm at Darren Franich. Email us all your thoughts about the season. We'll have a, a fun conversation next week to wrap up season seven. G- Podcast at EW.com and stick around for more from us next week, the season finale of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. And just one more thing, I know you've been hearing us talk a lot about them, but we have one more ad for our sponsor, iBooks, who we want to thank for sponsoring the entire season of our Season 7 podcast. Of course, you know they have these Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. But instead of pointing out a specific feature this time, I'd just say, you know, if you've only seen the HBO show and you haven't read Martin's books, they're really an epic experience unto themselves and they're full of detail beyond the show and have many differences in the story that will surprise you in new ways. Martin's third book, A Storm of Swords, I count that as the most fun I have ever had reading a novel. So if you've never read Martin's books, I definitely recommend you pick them up. These enhanced editions are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but they're most likely available where you live.